heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. This is Dr. Lee for America, in for Malcolm. And this is Voice of a Nation. Today, we're talking with a man who lost his older brother to COVID for lack of early treatment and the horrible death that COVID causes and the devastating impact on families who have lost loved ones to this disease that just ravages the body when it's let go to the end stages. What can we learn from all of this? What can we learn from Mark's experience and his family's experience? What can we do differently going forward? Today's guest is Mark Keeley, the younger brother to David, who died from complications of COVID-19 in December 2020. Mark is a lead voice in Canada for public policy on health and other issues, and he is the principal of KNA Incorporated, a public policy and health management company providing Canadian standards based on healthcare services, research, advice to government, and businesses in Canada and globally. Keeley is an expert in health governance and communications. From 2003 to 2007, Mark Keeley was CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association, the largest professional pharmacy organization in Canada. During his tenure, he steered the organization through the toughest issues of the day, including the Transparent Drug System for Patients Act and cross-border drug trade, which interestingly enough has benefited a lot of my own patients in the United States because we often work with certified Canadian pharmacies to get medications at lower cost. He lectures worldwide on prescription drug reform to this day. He is also a former hospital administrator and the former CEO of, as I said, of Canada's largest pharmacy organization. He was advisor to John N. Turner, the former prime minister of Canada for over 30 years on health and energy policies. He can be heard on satellite radio on a regular basis on health and energy issues and is a frequent commentator on issues political. Mark, welcome to our show today. And let me start by saying, I'm just so terribly sorry that you lost your brother to this devastating disease. And, and so I so feel for you and your family that you were not able to be with him at the end and didn't have access to early treatment. And I, I appreciate your willingness to share your personal experience with our listeners, 
to help people understand more about this devastating impact and, and lessons we can learn from this. So thank you for being with us on Voice of a Nation. Dr. Lee, it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm, um, I'm really grateful to you for giving me the chance to, to talk about this. You know, as you say, it's, um, it's a tough thing. I never expected that, uh, that COVID, um, that the virus would affect my family as it has. And I think you're intuitive in your comments about how, how, how dreadful it was. You know, my mother and father are, are uh, 87 and 85 respectively. And I never thought for the life of me that my parents who are that age would lose a son uh, this early that, that, and, and would be a loss that would be so preventable. That's my, my big uh, message to people that, you know, this virus is, um, it is deadly, but uh, there, is a, there is an opportunity to, uh, to, to stem it or stave it off in a way that I think we, we ought to be a lot more vigilant about, Dr. Lee. And, and so I, I'm really grateful to you for giving me this chance. Well, I, I am just honored that you are willing to share this story because it is painful. It's personal. It's painful. It's very difficult to talk about this. And yet we must face it. I, I think in many ways, just as God calls us to share the gospel, I think, I think God calls us to share the ways that we, through faith and perseverance and strength, that we find our way through adversity and loss and death and find meaning through all of that. So you are helping to do that for you and your family in helping David's tragic death when he was healthy at 61, have, helping his death have meaning and purpose by using the what you've gained to teach others. Well, well, you know, Dr. Lee, it's an interesting comment you raised because, you know, one of the things that, you know, I think I've, I've had a, a very interesting career here in Canada. Not only have I been involved in politics, but in healthcare, and, you know, they're, they're virtually the same thing if you follow that thinking. Uh, but more importantly, when my brother died, I, um, the, the most often asked question by anybody that wanted to know about his death was, well, he must have had a pre-existing condition, didn't he? And I thought, no, he didn't. My brother was, as you said, 61 years old. He was in extraordinarily good shape, Dr. Lee. He cycled 70 kilometers a day. And if you think about that in the context of a person who you know, really cares about their physical fitness, he lived at the base of a ski hill in, a, in a, an area in this province of Ontario, Canada, that's known for skiing. And he would, in the summertime, run up the hill with his dogs. In the wintertime, he would ski down it. He, he cycled, as I said, every single day. And even on December the 1st, when he was diagnosed with having contracted COVID-19, um, he had finished a 70-kilometer cycle. So there was nothing that one could, could uh, link my brother's uh, catching of COVID to a pre-existing condition. And so I thought... Um, in my own sort of small way that I would pay homage to my brother by writing a story that was picked up by a national media outlet in Canada. And lo and behold, it went viral and it got a lot of attention across Canada. 
And that just sort of, it, it was almost like a floodgate opening from a lot of media outlets and, and others wanting to know about this, um, this issue. Because I got to say, Dr. Lee, we know that there have been, since my brother died, 20,000 more deaths in Canada related to COVID-19. But we really, a lot of people are still saying, I haven't, I haven't it hasn't really touched me. And uh, so I, I thought my small way of, of, uh, of paying tribute to David's legacy was a way to do that. So I wrote that, uh, that article, which you, um, which you read, and which prompted this discussion. And I got to tell you, um, Canadians were, the, 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 um, the reaction was both surprising in one way and touching in another. And surprising because some people didn't believe it. They thought, nah, there's got to be more to this than, than just a guy that was in good shape that gets COVID and dies. And then the, the other, there was this outpouring of affection uh, by other people and even uh, a hue and cry from Canadians saying, what can we do? And now, you know, I've, I've, I've had uh, opportunity to, to speak to people from South America and from uh, Mexico and even Europe about this issue, all saying the same thing. I think there's an opportunity for us to, to, to look at some kind of a global discussion on the impact of COVID. You know, uh, my brother um, uh, was, he quarantined at home with his wife. And I thought this was a, a great thing. It, he said to her, look, when you quarantine um, uh, at your side of the house, I'll quarantine at my side. And when she was sleeping, he was cooking. My brother was a chef and he was cooking dinners for her and freezing them so that she had uh, food when he was sleeping at night. And uh, it was sort of a, a great way for him to, to sort of get through the quarantine. But then as she got better, he got progressively worse. And he would, while he was at home, Dr. Lee, he would send notes to all of us. I come from a family of seven children. My brother is the second oldest. And what he would, he would say was, this is how I'm feeling. And at one point he said to me in a note, I, um, I feel like I have got, I've got popcorn in my lungs. Uh, popcorn kernels, and it's it was getting really bad. And then at one point, he, when I did talk to him before he went into the hospital, he could hardly uh, talk, and his breathing was so shallow. And he said, "It appears like there are um, razor blades in my lungs, and and I better uh, I got to do something about this." So, the advice from not only me but other people around him in his hometown of Huntsville, Ontario, was, "You better get to the uh, to the hospital." And he did, and he was uh, admitted to the, uh, to the ICU as a very sick patient. And um, I, I gotta say, um, one of the things that was really troubling only COVID patient in all of, of, um, of Huntsville, Ontario, when you, know, you had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds in a place like Toronto, where I live, who were in ICUs, every, almost every bed was taken up in every ICU, every hospital that had an ICU, but he was the only COVID patient in Huntsville. And that was really interesting because they didn't have the core competency in that hospital, even the physicians, to manage this very uh, tough case of COVID-19 because it had deteriorated so badly. So there was a, a physician that, uh, that we knew in New York City who was a, a sort of a frontline um, uh, physician related to the, the pandemic in New York City. And he came up to, to uh, Huntsville to work with the hospital crew there to manage my brother. 
And it got to the point, Dr. Lee, where they just couldn't do it anymore. They airlifted him to a tertiary care facility about 150 kilometers away from his town. And they, they put him on a ventilator. And I believe, to be honest with you, um, he was just so far gone and it was uh, it, it, it had just ravaged his uh, his whole system and it broke down and he died on um, on Boxing Day, which was which was really tough for all of us because we were all thinking, you know, with, like you had said earlier on with with uh, with a lot of prayer. We're a good Catholic family. We thought that this was a good way to to help David with ton, tons of prayer, but also good practical applicability of medicine. And um, it just never worked for the guy. And uh, that was a, it was really difficult, as I said, for all of us. But the worst part, Dr. Lee, was that nobody, nobody could be with him. And so he, he was put into a coma just before he was put on a ventilator around the 20, 22nd of December and uh, died alone. Uh, his wife was, in, uh, it was, it was outside of his room. Obviously, she couldn't be there with him. And um, the, the last part that I really want your listeners to know is what ended up happening was they have a protocol here where he was, because they needed that ICU bed in that hospital, they, they, they took him out of that bed, they put him in a plastic bag, they put uh, a big sticker on the bag that said, um, high risk uh, COVID, and they shipped them off to be cremated right away. And that was sort of the, uh, the way we got to, to hear of how my brother ended up um, being, for all intents and purposes, disposed of as a COVID patient. You know, if he had died during COVID of, of uh, cancer or of a heart attack or of, um, you know, any other kind of a chronic disease, we would have been able to have a funeral for him. Uh, we would have been able to uh, quietly get together with a small group of our family, but because it was COVID, it was it was uh, it was done so fast and so um, almost as if he just disappeared. And that's uh, that's the hardest part. So my 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 story really goes through that, and I'm going to say this painstaking detail about how hard it was for us, but we didn't realize just how difficult it was for poor David. That I mean. It is just staggering to me that in our civilized countries of the U.S. and Canada, that we are treating our dying patients so horribly, cruelly, and inhumanely. When I, I always ask the question, actually, to me, it's common sense. If the staff can go in wearing protective gear, why couldn't a family member be there at his bedside and hold his hand? Well, when, not, when my husband was ill with a deadly respiratory infection in the hospital in Germany in 2017, we all put on gowns and masks and gloves and booties to go into his room, but we could be there with him. and. I, I, I have had a very hard time as a physician understanding the cruelty of our responses and shutting the families out completely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I'm even going to go one step further. And this is going to be inflammatory to especially um, hospital administrators in my country and uh, public health regu regulators here. But 
we have a big problem, and I know you did too in the United States, with um, the accessibility of uh, personal protective in, uh, equipment. And PPE, as they call it, was in real short supply in Canada. And one of the reasons why they didn't want to allow families to, um, to see their COVID patients was because of the cost of the PPE and how much they would have to go through. You know, every intervention or every, uh, um, however you want to call that, yeah, every time you got to see them, you had to change into brand new PPE. So, you know, that kind of cost-saving measure, and I'm putting air quotes around that, is, uh, is a terrible way to, um, to discern who gets to, to be with a patient, um, especially if they have COVID. And, uh, you know, I have a real problem with that. So I think we need to look as a country and as a healthcare system, both in Canada and the United States, on what we do for things like, uh, you know, stockpiling personal protective equipment. And I've been writing a lot about this and lecturing a lot about this because I think we're, we're not there yet. We're still um, very, very much involved with trying to make sure that, um, that we, uh, we get people vaccinated or that we, uh, we look at um, how we control um, uh, what they call the congreg congregations of people, uh, those kinds of issues, which I think are, are um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, maybe put the, the putting the closing the door while the horse is gone kind of a deal. But we really have a, a long way to go in our system to be a lot more innovative when we're dealing with things like this pandemic. Well, I think you're right. I think you're right. And let me just comment, make two comments to what you just said. Number one, I, I think you're absolutely right that to focus on simply contagion control and vaccines is closing the door after the horse has escaped. Because what has clearly been shown in multiple other countries, probably over 50 at this point, is that if you treat any viral illness early, as we do with hepatitis, with HIV, with shingles, with influenza, with any of them, treat it early in the first few days of symptoms, you can reduce viral infection and viral spread, viral load in the body and spread to others. The clinical trials on the vaccines have not shown reduction of infection or reduction of spread or reduction of hospitalizations or deaths. What they've shown is reduction in severity of symptoms but people can still get sick with COVID. They can still get infected. The early treatment algorithms used in other countries with, that were shut down and suppressed in the G8 countries, Canada, Australia, United States, and Western Europe, were all medicines that worked in the first few days to decrease viral infection and decrease viral replication and spread, which did reduce hospitalizations and death. So not only did we fail to pay attention to one of the pillars of infectious disease control, which is early treatment, we did contagion control and we focused on vaccines and we focused on hospital and they completely ignored the fourth pillar of early treatment. So that's number one. But the second point is, I, I think, it, again, I agree with you and I don't think it's inflammatory at all to say that to make a decision to exclude families based only on cost of the PPE is outrageous. Certainly in the United States, hospitals bill patients and for every single thing they use. 
So, and that may be different in Canada, but in the United States, if they use a Band-Aid on a patient, patients build for it, usually at fairly exorbitant rates. So there's no reason that patients' families couldn't have been offered the option of donning PPE to enter the room to be with their loved one. If they were afraid or if they felt too vulnerable, let the family choose. Right. And, and the, the difference, the, the fundamental difference between our healthcare systems is our healthcare system in Canada is publicly funded. Right. So, uh, so, you know, most of the, the system, most hospitals, and I'm a former hospital administrator, um, most hospital administrators uh, get receive what they get from government called global budget. So if you've got, you know, X number of beds in your hospital, your budget is commensurate with the number of beds you have and the, uh, the acuity in your, in your area. But my point on that is I, I think that the system, that, that sort of uh, engenders a spirit of, and, and again, this is where it gets inflammatory, it's, it, it engenders a spirit of, of rationalizing healthcare based on the cost and how much it's going to impact on your global budget. So, yes. and, and I've, been, I've been very critical of this uh, country and our system uh, based on, on that uh, largely because as, as a, the, my brother's experience or what happened to my brother has, has, has helped me to, uh, to raise my voice, if that's the right way I could say this, Dr. Lee, to, to let people know that we have to do a better job on this than we're doing at present. I'm, I'm as I said, I'm a hospital administrator, but I'm an expert in health system design. And I can tell you that every hospital right now with the exception of a few, are all COVID hospitals with uh, COVID patients in them, which means that no chronic disease, very few elective surgeries are being done in this country. So what I what I what I said even on in as a consequence of my brother's death is this is a pandemic, yes, but this pandemic, apropos to your comments about vaccines, will become endemic. And because it will be an endemic, every year we're going to be looking at some kind of a booster for COVID-19 or COVID-21, whatever it's going to be. And we need to be smarter about how we sensitize ourselves to what this means. Your point, Dr. Lee, and I'm going to, I'm going to rip that comment off and use it here, is that people in Canada think that once you get the vaccine, they've been so seduced to think that I now can go back to living my life normally which is not accurate at all. So you made it very clear that, you know, from a clinical, uh, the, from the clinical expert you are, is that it doesn't mean that you're free and clear of COVID. It just means that it lessens the severity when you do get it. That's true. And all the clinical trials showed that. I think there was a slight reduction in hospitalization rate only in the J&J &J vaccine clinical right. trial. But Pfizer and Moderna absolutely did not show the benefit to reduce infection spread, hospitalizations, or death. They right. show reduced severity, and I'm grateful that you actually are validating that because people think I'm misrepresenting it when I point that out, and I'm, I'm not. And I also, even if people have gotten vaccinated, as you said, it does not end the pandemic. We've got to have treatment. People are still going to get sick. We still need treatment. And to shut down the treatment options is to me just unconscionable. And in fact, a number of us physicians have said we see it as crimes against humanity to prevent access 
to early treatment for a viral illness that is treatable if you start early. And your brother is a good example of someone who was incredibly healthy. Yes. I mean, to be able to cycle 70 kilometers a day and to also have cycled that very day that he started getting more symptomatic is, is stunning to me because it tells me just medically, it tells me just how fit he was that he could have done that as this virus is beginning to take over. And he, that is a poignant description about feeling like razor blades in the lungs. And I want your listeners to pay attention because that's exactly what happens if you wait too late to be treated. Right. And not that he chose to wait, it's just that he did not have access. Exactly. Now, since, since he was infected and died, there have been about eight or nine cases in his community since that time. Wow. Yeah. And, but it's interesting because I, I, I wanted to, to go, the, one of the things that was really uh, stark for me was on, and that's what really prompted, um, again, me to write this, is I'm watching the news at 11 o'clock on the 26th of December. And it hey, says- Mark, I'm yes. sorry to interrupt. I tell you what, would you tell that story right after the break? We have a hard break at about 25 minutes and- I would really appreciate if we could come right back and pick that up. Sure thing. We'll be right back after the break. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health. Sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Hail, my fellow Americans, how did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down. Uh, you were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list, and they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. This is Dr. Lee for America talking today with Mark Keeley. Canadian health policy expert, former hospital administrator, 
former CEO of a, the largest Canadian pharmacy association and former advisor to the Canadian prime minister for 30 years on health policy and on governance and communications in healthcare and energy sectors. Mark is sharing with us the story of his brother's tragic death from COVID as he faced critical illness and hospitalized, died alone. And I'm grateful to Mark for telling us the story of what has happened in his family with the goal of helping others understand ways that we can learn from this and help to prevent it for others. Mark, you started to tell a story right before the break about what had happened, and I'd like you to pick that up in the last half hour that we have. There's good time to tell that story. Thanks, Dr. Lee. When I was I was I was sort of struck by your comments about how casual the systems are in terms of, you know, uh, um, the 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 attitude towards COVID nineteen patients. When I I I remembered on the the, the night that he died, the twenty sixth, the twenty um, sixth of December, twenty twenty. I'm watching the news at eleven o'clock, and they they have a, a running tally. They said today we had. Um, uh, 2,357 uh, infections in uh, in the province of Ontario, and uh, in Canada, 15,001 deaths from COVID-19. So I, it was just that casual, right? And then they move on to other news stories. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, 15,001. That one person is my brother, David. And so I just I, I, I thought I'm going to write this article and I'm going to make mention of the fact that the 15,001st death in this country, Canada, was my brother. And this is what what this is how it transpired. But, you know, why I'm making that comment to you and I'm not being uh, flippant about it, but there are an awful lot of uh, commentators and media say, well, you know, in Canada, for example, we don't have near the deaths or near the infections that the United States have. You know, we, we have 40 million people in this country, Dr. Lee. So let's put that in perspective, number one. And number two, that since 15,001, there have been 20,000 deaths in Canada from COVID-19. So we're not out of the woods yet. But my point to a lot of people is you have to put a name to that. And when you think about, I even wrote in the in the article that there's a there's a, a city near where I live with uh, fifteen thousand people. So in in what I was trying to make the analogy was that a whole city worth of people ostensibly died the day my brother did. If we wanted to use that analogy, and it, it, that put a lot of um, uh, focus in people's minds about just how severe uh, this is and how casual we are in terms of addressing the issue of how much this affects people. I'm even gonna go one step further and say, I come from a, a large Irish Catholic family, there are seven kids and my mom and dad. And um, you know, when you think about the brothers and sisters and their siblings and cousins and uncles and aunts, there are hundreds of people, thousands in every family that are impacted on the death of a person that dies from COVID-19 and nobody, Nobody could go and celebrate, hug, pray, nothing uh, to, to, uh, to honor that person's death. You know, um, a lot of people have said to me, and Dr. Lee, I don't want to make this uh, 
this way of, uh, of describing it either, but I think it's important that when you, when you have a death, when you have a marriage, when you have those kinds of things where you need to congregate in a church, for example, it's important that we do that as a community. And because nobody could, could send David off with a funeral, uh, with a priest or, uh, uh, you know, whatever, uh, we, it's, it's just one of those things where there's, there's no closure. So that's where it becomes very problematic, not only for my family, but for, as I said in my note, for the 15,000 and other families who lost a loved one uh, based on COVID-19 in Canada at that time. It's, uh, it's, we're almost double that number now uh, to, well, almost 30,000 deaths in Canada and, um, and growing. And now with the variants, um, I think it's, uh, it, we're, at a, we're at a very tender juncture right now. So to even to, 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 to sort of make the leap into what you're talking about, about other sort of pharmacotherapies to manage the infection rates on this thing, I think we've got a, a lot of discussion that needs to take place in several countries around uh, what we do to sensitize people to be aware about the impacts of this virus. I think you're absolutely right. And the other aspect of what you've just been talking about is what we need urgently to keep in the forefront. We are supposed to be Judeo-Christian civilized countries that value human life and to face the sinister cruelty of tearing apart the fabric of families, the fabric apart of uh, the tearing apart the fabric of our societies, of our churches, of our ability to be together in community, which is what human beings is fundamental. I mean, animals share community. Animals are social creatures. And my little cat is grieving the, his brother who died of coronavirus, right, in right. the feline coronavirus. Animals grieve, humans grieve. This is fundamental. And to prevent the coming together to pray, to share community, to share a life, to celebrate a life, and bring closure, I think is probably one of the cruelest things that I have seen on a national level in my lifetime. And, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go up, it, this is, this is um, stark, and I think uh, your listeners would probably appreciate knowing this. When my brother was airlifted from the hospital in Huntsville to the tertiary care facility where he ended up dying, the helicopter that landed on the roof was greeted by uh, a team of ICU specialists and they, they popped a, um, a, 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 almost like a dunce cap on his head that had COVID on it. And they kept that on my, my sister-in-law had taken a picture from far away of him laying in his bed with COVID written across his forehead as if he's, you know, an untouchable. And that to me is, is, uh, you know, it just, it, it, it just, it grates at the very fiber of my being because it doesn't, as you talked about Hippocrates, it just, it just, it just grates at that. And it, it's just so unhypocritic. I just think that's horrible. I can't imagine that they did that in Canada. Right. But, but we're so, I mean, we're, we're at the stage right now, and this is, I think, you know, for, uh, uh, 
uh, in Canada, all the public health um, physicians in this country, it's almost like their Super Bowl, right? So this is, you know, the, the, this is their time to shine and, and they really want to regulate. And, and that's what I think is driving um, a lot of this. Uh, it's, it's almost craziness in people's minds about how they reconcile what's really happening here. And I, I don't want to be inflammatory. I, I just think I have a big mouth and I can get attention. And I'm trying to, to make the point very clear to people is we have to just be smarter about what we do to understand what we can do about this pandemic, because it's not going away anytime soon. And just by virtue of you getting a vaccine does not free you from any of the um, obligations you have as a human being to make sure you don't uh, help spread this. Exactly. And I, I think the fact that you have a loud voice makes you a perfect guest on Malcolm Out Loud's show <laughs> and America Out Loud, because if we think of North America, Canada is part of that. Yes. And America Out Loud and Americans in the U.S. and North Americans throughout Canada need to be standing up and speaking out for humane treatment, for all treatment options, for all four pillars to be available, contagion control, early treatment, hospital treatment, vaccines, and natural herd immunity. And exactly. Frankly, we know that natural immunity from having been COVID recovered is durable, it's complete, and it's broader than what the vaccines can offer. So we need to, we ought to be having people who are COVID recovered wear a red badge of courage and see them as an example of survival instead of forcing them to get a vaccine that where it makes them at higher risk for adverse consequences by adding the inflammatory response triggered by the vaccine to develop antibodies when they've already had COVID and developed antibodies and they've been through that inflammatory process. So I, I think we've got to, we do need a different approach and you are the perfect person in Canada to be that lead voice on that. And whatever we can do on this end to help you, I'd like to do that. Well, I, I may take you up on that because I think, you know, one of the things that, um, that inextricably links our two countries is the fact that we have the longest and uh, yeah, the longest undefended border and uh, the, the, the longest peacetime uh, treaties or agreements or relationships with any two nations on planet earth. Canadians and Americans love each other. Uh, we're constantly going back and forth between each other's nations and we're your largest trading partner. So I think, you know, it's, there are, and you're in Arizona, I can tell you that there are millions of Canadians who travel there as snowbirds or who have vacation properties or winter homes there. The same thing in several other states on the, on the west and east coasts of your country. So, you know, I don't think it's, it's smart for us to, to say, well, this is a Canadian or made in Canada experiment, experiment, or this is a made in the United States experiment, because we are really uh, inextricably linked. So I think we have to we have to do a lot more around that. One of the things that that um, it, it was funny, uh, Dr. Lee. I had a I was involved in a in a panel last September, and it was a couple of congressional leaders in your country on the panel talking about one of the outcomes or the unintended consequences of COVID nineteen, and that is the 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 soon to be 
very stark dearth of uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients for um, chronic disease meds. So we're going to be in severe shortage, but that shortage is going to be shared between Canada and the United States. So we have to be smarter on a whole range of issues. Um, but, but COVID has really cast a very, very strong light on, 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 on an area where I think we could work very well together. And the fact that you're saying, look, Mark, you've got a big mouth, you could use it and we'll give you the platform. I'm going to take you up on that. I actually have some thoughts about how that can take place. And I've been working with Malcolm on some new ideas that he is developing as he's launching the a revisioned, uh, new vision, stronger vision, broader vision for the America Out Loud platform, and and I think we, I think we as people of faith have an obligation to use our voices for good, and I, you may not know this, Mark, but Mark, but Malcolm actually started the show Voice of a Nation two years ago on his platform that in April is five years old and Voice of a Nation, his first show developed his belief and the theme for this show that we are in a battle between the forces of good and evil. And he did a powerful show on that. I just listened to it again recently. And that has been his mission. And he describes it as his mission all along. And we are moving even further in that direction. And your family experience, your Irish Catholic upbringing, your dedication to the principles and sanctity of human life, uh -huh. and wanting to make a difference in the healthcare system and delivery of health services is critically important for what we all have to do to preserve life and God's gift of life and liberty as we move forward. Well, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And as I say, you know, we owe an obligation as, as humans to, uh, to, to do that. I find it fascinating when you look at this issue in and of itself that people have said, well, you know, it's, it's sort of God's way of, of whittling away at the weak people. And I'm thinking, what? People that were, were suggesting that this is just going to attack, you know, uh, people who are immunocompromised or old people in, in long-term care homes. What I think this has shown, and, and as a matter of fact, I was criticized in a, in a couple of media interviews when I raised the specter that 58%, I mean, in November, uh, excuse me, in December of 2020, the CDC had suggested that 58% of, uh, of people who died of COVID were under the age of 65. So don't tell me that this is affecting, you know, uh, 85 year olds or, uh, or very, very sick people. My brother was not sick. And my brother is, uh, uh, as I said, was had no pre-existing conditions. So, so don't automatically assume, ladies and gentlemen, that that is the, the cohort that's going to be affected by this. We've had people here who are 15 years old who have contracted uh, COVID-19 and died. So it, it goes uh, beyond uh, a lot of that, um, that uh, you know, wide swath of, of uh, comments that are just so general. But when I talked to my brother's physician who was treating him, I asked him very clearly, I said, doc, why, why is this happening? 
And his comment was, and I think you'd, you'd agree with me too, doctor, as a clinician, is that his genetic makeup was just unable to, to ward off in his own body the terribleness of this virus, which really speaks to the larger issue about how we do have to protect this. And like I say, uh, it's not enough just to say to people, get a vaccine and you're going to be fine. We have to practice vigilance right now. We have to make sure that we we, we do all of the right things to, uh, to stop the spread of the infection, but we also have to be caring enough to know that um, I'm wearing a mask, not for me, but for you. And uh, those are the kinds of things that uh, when, when I hear in, uh, in the city of Toronto, for example, that there are protests of people that are saying, um, I, don't wanna, I don't wanna stay in my home anymore. I don't wanna wear a mask. And I just thought that's very selfish in a lot of ways, because I think in, in, what we need to be doing is thinking about um, we, the essence of what you said about uh, being dignified towards each other as human beings, which is, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, God's grace coming through. Well, I, I think you're right. And, and I would also add a slightly different additional perspective as a physician who has been treating COVID patients since last March with the algorithm that Dr. McCullough and his team of international experts developed. People like Dr. Zelenko in New York had used uh, these approaches early on. And what I found in my practice is that if I started the combined early treatment with antiviral, anti-inflammatory medicine, the anticoagulants if needed and the corticosteroid inhalation nebulized, for example, budesonide to reduce inflammation, reduce the viral load and reduce the damage to the body that even my patients at high risk with preexisting conditions could be brought safely through it. And I, I think of the, the couple of patients I had who had a history of asthma and, and had insulin resistance, for example. And by starting early and aggressively with multi-drug therapy, now not one drug, there isn't one drug that consistently works, but it needs a combination approach for the different aspects of this disease. And it literally, I, I feel very grateful that I could help everyone early, but I did not have any patients in my practice go into the hospital or die. And there were some high-risk people, people who weren't as healthy as your brother. And I just think to me, it's unconscionable that we are not also focusing on that because clearly people can wear masks all the time and they can still get infected. So yeah. that's not just, it's not an answer to just focus on masks and social distancing and just focus on late stage hospital and just focus on vaccines. We're missing the whole fourth pillar that medicine has done since biblical times. I couldn't, agree, I, couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. You know, um, I'll tell you one of the things that's happening here is we, uh, I belong to this group of clinicians, they're uh, uh, physicians and uh, nurse practitioners and uh, health experts, etc. And it's a growing cohort too here in Canada, Dr. Lee. And one of the things that we're doing uh, next week through a, a member of our federal parliament is to put a petition in front of the uh, Parliament of Canada on exactly what you're saying. 
um, you, you know, there's a, a, a cohort that believes, and it's clinically backed up, that ivermectin and uh, hydroxychloroquine could be used. And in a lot of ways, that's, it gets outright uh, ignored. And I'm going to be blunt to say this, largely because of the, the messengers on who brought that forward. And it, this is, it, it just drives me insane that, that everybody would give short shrift to hydroxychloroquine because Donald Trump said we should take it. So in Canada, there was this outright vilification of him, which I, I, I just find um, um, sort of gave the Parliament of Canada, the government of Canada, sort of carte blanche to say, uh, you know, we're not Donald Trump, so we could say those kinds of things. Uh, but but now this 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 clinical cohort that's gaining traction across Canada is starting to say those two uh, therapies could be used um, to to help much like what you were talking about. So you're going to see those kinds of things in Canada happen over the next little while, and I think that makes a, a heck of a lot of sense. And the last point I want to make on that is there's an also there's also a growing cohort of people in the legal profession who might use the um, the opportunity for class action suits because of things like COVID deaths or infections that could have been um, avoided with these other opportunities not being uh, offered as a, a viable option or alternative to social distancing or physical distancing or taking a vaccine. So it's gonna be an, an interesting uh, dynamic in the next, uh, um, I'm gonna say 12 to 18 months here in this country. I think both are urgently needed. And literally, Mark, I went on radio in March and April last year on WBZ in Boston with Dan Ray's show that reached 38 states. And I went public at that time with a call for plaintiff's attorneys to stand up and represent the families who had lost loved ones for COVID because they were restricted from getting early treatment. And in New York State, were forced back into the nursing homes and caused so many nursing home deaths. And literally, we have been working, several of us have been working to try and find attorneys with the courage to stand up and do exactly as you just mentioned, and it is urgently needed. The early treatment is urgently needed. And I think it's actually bigger than just the fact that President Trump correctly identified the information coming from China and North Korea in March 2020 that hydroxychloroquine was successfully treating COVID. It, it's much bigger than that because it was suppressed in so many countries that had no connection with what he had said. And, there and it was more orchestrated. But what, what is what it became fascinating to me, I really dug into the medical literature on it worldwide and found that not only has it been used safely for 65 years, as you know, for malaria and rheumatoid yes. and lupus, but hydroxychloroquine is not only a potent antiviral that our NIH knew and, and the research was done with the Montreal Research Institute and the CDC and NIH in 2002 and 2003 for SARS-CoV-1 which shared 79% of the viral genome with SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19 illness. They knew that 20 years ago, Montreal and the US. But also it's a potent anti-inflammatory medicine and it has been used as an anti-diabetes drug in countries around the world. It's a second line diabetes drug in India today. And so wow. the very people that were the highest risk 
for COVID were the diabetics and insulin resistant obese patients where hydroxychloroquine had been shown. I had papers going back to the 1980s from the US and other countries that it reduced glucose and A1C in diabetics. And the most recent one was a 2014 paper plus hydroxychloroquine is being used in at least 16 trials of cancer as a cancer drug therapy. And a recent publication showed that it actually was reducing the spread of metastatic prostate cancer through these inflammatory mechanisms. This is an amazing drug, one of the safest we've ever had available. I had no patients that had serious side effects and had to stop it. Wow. And everybody treated. Well, like I said, I think there's a, a huge opportunity to take advantage of, of your voice too here because Canadians have been you know, uh, literally tacit on this issue and largely because we're, uh, you know, we're, there's, there's not a lot of awareness. And as a physician, I think you have a, a, a huge, um, you have a, an opportunity here. Well, I agree and I am doing whatever I'm called to do and able to do with my expertise to speak out. The other person that is extremely knowledgeable about this that might help with the Canadian Parliament presentation is Dr. Peter McCullough and then Dr. Paul Alexander in Canada as well. And the two of them know a, an enormous body of knowledge about the benefits of early treatment, the ways that existing safe regulatory approved drugs, these are all drugs that are regulatory approved in both Canada and the US and have been safely used for decades and putting them together works exceptionally well, including in high risk patients and putting together not just your local coalition of doctors, but also some of these international experts could be very powerful for the Canadian parliament to hear an organized presentation presenting the medical literature on all of this, because we actually do have randomized control trials. People are being lied to about that. We have clinical outcomes trials. We have death rate data from countries that used it early, that's death rates are orders of magnitude, 10, 20 times lower than the US. And it is possible to get going on this early treatment and ramp that up. And people like you with your background could be a real leader on that front in Canada, which would then affect other countries if Canada takes the lead. Well, challenge accepted on that. And I, I do know Dr. McCullough, I'm very, I'm very proud of what he's done in your country. And Dr. Alexander is one of the, is one of the lead uh, physicians here in Canada on trying to get this petition in front of the government of Canada or the parliament of Canada. And I think um, you're right. One of the things that, that I've been trying to get Canadians to, um, especially people who in the sector to, to do is to some kind of symmetry, Dr. Lee. I think we need to, if, if the government's not gonna say, well, we'll take the lead and, and help to create better awareness on this, I think that there's an opportunity to get physicians. You're right, the legal community ought to get involved in terms of what the unintended consequences of this are as it relates to our constitution and your rights as a human being. Yeah, these, that was a, that's a great suggestion and I will follow up with you on that. Well, that, that's good. And I would suggest that you get that summit going because Canada could take the lead if the US isn't. And we need a summit, doctors and lawyers, 
and patient advocates and patient families and patients coming together in a summit to take the lead when government has failed us. It is absolutely urgently needed. And I, I think we need to get it going. Well, that's a call to action, Dr. Lee. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a little bit known for that. Well, so good stuff. I love it. I, I, Mark, I'm just, again, it's just devastating what your family went through. And, you know, I was blessed when I lost loved ones over the last two years to be able to be with them when they died because they uh, didn't die of COVID, although it was, it, it's just, it's just horrible to watch someone you love die with their lungs failing and they can't breathe. I, I don't wish that on anyone, but to be able to be there beside them and hold their hand and love them and pray with them is, is really a gift. And I see that as God's grace that I, I had that blessing when I was faced with this. And I am just so sad that your family and your brother did not have that. And whatever we can do together to raise awareness on all of this and the urgency of getting back to our humane treatment and caring compassion that medicine has used to have and governments used to be, our governments used to be better at that. We need to do that because it's only the concerned citizens who will speak up. And, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer as a Lutheran pastor at the time of Nazi Germany, one of, one of the things that meant the most to me was his quote that said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. So you get loud, I'll keep getting loud, and America Out Loud and Malcolm Out Loud will join forces and work together to save lives and bring compassion and caring back into medicine as it should be. Well, God bless you. That's great. Thank you very much. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very, very honored to be part of this show. Well, I'm very honored to have you, and I just thank you for being willing to share your story. This is Dr. Lee for America, standing in for Malcolm, signing off for today. This is your life. This is your health. This is your freedom at stake. It is time to get involved. It is time to get loud. Don't be afraid to speak up and help make the world around you a better place.